Hello, Twisted Humans. Do you find yourself wanting to know more about the latest murder, conspiracy, cult, or haunting? Then this is the podcast for you. In 1952, there was a record high of UFOs reported. 1,500 sightings. There has been evidence of human sacrifice, devil worship, and it is haunted by more spirits than can be counted. A family of two adults and two kids reportedly saw a giant flying thing with glowing red eyes. And meanwhile, the family's nanny that helped Veronica to care for her and Lucian's children was found bludgeoned to death in the basement of their family home. I'm Alicia. And I'm Sierra. And this is Twisted Twisted and and Uncorked. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. This is Beth. And today, this is episode 81 for True Crime B&B. This is going to be a Just One B, so it's only me today. I am, however, presenting two stories because this is a Halloween episode, and so I have two cases that both happened on Halloween, one in 1984 and one in 1986. One of them you've probably heard before, the other one you probably have not. So I'm just going to jump right in. Isaac and Rosa Gutierrez were married in the late 1970s when Isaac was a firefighter. They had a little girl together in 1979. Their relationship was always a little bit chaotic, and he wasn't an easy man to be with. He also had a problem managing alcohol, and his drinking problems led to his being fired for the second time in 1983 from the California State Department of Forestry. By 1984, Isaac's life was spiraling out of control, and he was pulled over for DUI, during which he took off, leading officers on a high-speed chase. When he was apprehended, he was arrested and then pled guilty to assault with a deadly weapon, being the vehicle, and sentenced to four years in prison. Rose's life with Isaac had been chaotic since nearly the beginning, so when he went to prison, she felt like her world was calming down. After taking a breather, 37-year-old Rosa went back to using her maiden name, Valencia, and met John K. Stouffer in June 1985. John had been born in Glendora, California in 1961 and was a nursing student at Victor Valley College. The two began seeing one another while Isaac was in prison for assault with a deadly weapon, and John moved into Rosa's house. At the end of 1985, Rosa told Isaac, who was still in prison, that she was living with her boyfriend. Isaac immediately told Rosa he would kill John, and Rosa told him she was filing for divorce. At one point shortly thereafter, Isaac called the house. A male voice answered, and it enraged Isaac. When John realized who it was that was calling, he told Isaac to stay away from the house and stay away from Rosa. Isaac was released from prison in April 1986, and over the next months, He got more and more angry. He wasn't even allowed to come to visit his daughter because there was a no-contact order. And when he called, John told him to stop calling. He told him he wasn't part of the little girl's life anymore and that if he came around, John would not hesitate to use his firearm to protect the family. Over the next six months, Isaac worked out an intricate plan of how to get revenge on John Stouffer for what Isaac thought of as stealing his life and to eliminate him from what he considered to be his family's life. The morning of Halloween 1986, John lured his sort-of-girlfriend, Bobby Faye Jones, 
who deserves her own episode, by the way, to a location where he killed her by strangulation with a garrote, wrapped her body in a rug, and left her on the back seat of the van she had driven there. Then he took the van. He lured his sister's husband, who was a retired police officer, out of his home with a request to be picked up at a mall. And while the brother-in-law was gone to supposedly pick Isaac up at Montgomery Ward, Isaac went into his house and stole several of the man's handguns and a shotgun. Then he went to the bus station and picked up his 15-year-old son from his first marriage, who was visiting him for a few days. They drove to Montrose Street in Hesperia, where Rosa lived with John and Rosa's eight-year-old daughter from her marriage to Isaac. Isaac and Joseph sat outside in the van for hours, watching the house and waiting for John and Rosa to return home. By that night, Halloween, 1986, Rosa and John had been together for a year, and they were happy together. To celebrate the holiday, they went out for the evening. The eight-year-old daughter was not with them. They had gone to dinner together and then returned to their house on Montrose Street in Hesperia, which is about 60 miles northeast of Los Angeles. Then John went into the bathroom to take a shower, and Rosa sat alone in the living room. The doorbell rang, and she got up to answer the door. When Rosa opened it, two men in masks were on the porch. At first she didn't think too much of it, as it was Halloween, but then they bum-rushed the door. As they pushed into the house, one man's mask was torn off, and it was revealed that it was her ex-husband Isaac Gutierrez, who had been out in the van in the street for hours, waiting for the two of them to return home. Isaac shoved Rosa to the floor and shouted at her. When Rosa tried to yell a warning to John, unaware and vulnerable in the shower, Isaac smashed her in the head with the butt of his handgun. The other man, still in a mask, held her at gunpoint while Isaac forced his way past her into the back of the house. She heard the bathroom door being kicked in and then several gunshots. Rosa was terrified, knowing that it must have been John being shot on the receiving end of this assault. Isaac had raced back to the master bathroom, burst in by kicking in the door, and saw John showering. John shouted at Gutierrez to get out of the house, but was cut short when Isaac brutally shot him multiple times in the face. The blast came from a 12-gauge shotgun, killing John instantly. As John's lifeless body fell to the shower floor, he was shot five more times in his chest, abdomen, and left arm. Isaac returned to the front of the house where the other man was still holding a gun to Rosa's head and forced her outside. They shoved her into the van Isaac had taken earlier in the day when he killed Billy Faye Jones. Rosa screamed and struggled to get away, but they gagged her and blindfolded her and then tied her hands and feet. Isaac told her that John was gone because he had blown him away. Then Isaac started driving. The second man used his knife to cut Rosa's clothing off of her, and as the van kept rolling down the interstate, the second man raped her. After what seemed like a long time, the van was pulled over 80 miles away in Coachella for having a headlight out. Gutierrez saw the police officer peering into a dome window on the side of the van where he could see the second man looking back out at him and Isaac hit the officer in the head with his gun. This set off a gunfight, police backup arrived, and Isaac was eventually overpowered and captured. The second man was also arrested. It was at this point that Rosa saw the second man and realized this man who had cut off her clothes and raped her was her 15-year-old former stepson, Joseph Gutierrez, whom Isaac had picked up at the bus station earlier in the day. 
Rosa asked the police to go to her house and check on her partner, John, and told them he would be hurt because he had been shot multiple times by Isaac. When police arrived at the Montrose Road home two hours after Rosa was rescued, they went inside and found John Stouffer's body in the shower, surrounded by blood and broken glass. He had not survived the first shots to his head and face, and brain matter was evident on the walls of the shower. The water, now long since running cold, was still going in the shower. Isaac and Joseph were both arrested and held without bail. Joseph was convicted on murder, rape, kidnapping, and burglary charges and sentenced to five to nine years in the California Youth Authority. Isaac was convicted and sentenced to death on first-degree murder of Billy Faye Jones and John Stouffer, first-degree residential burglary for stealing the firearms, kidnapping, aiding and abetting forcible rape of Rosa, attempted murder of a police officer, and multiple lying and wait circumstances were aggravating factors on the murder charges. His first appeal was automatic as a condition of the death penalty, and his second appeal in 2002 resulted in the confirmation of conviction and of sentence. Isaac testified in his own defense, and the majority of his explanation, his excuses, for his behavior stemmed from the fact that John Stouffer was in fact a trans man who had taken male hormones for seven years since the age of 18, but had not yet undergone gender affirmation surgery. John, who had a deep voice and full dark beard and mustache, and appeared to all as a man, had been born Catherine Ann Lankford in 1962. He was a man, he lived as a man, his life and his choices caused harm to no one, and at the age of 25 he was murdered because another man felt emasculated that a trans man could be loved by his ex-wife, and Isaac wasn't. The bulk of his arguments, as summarized in an appeal brief, were, quote, He admitted killing Stouffer with a shotgun. His defense to the murder was that he became enraged when he confirmed his suspicions that John Stouffer was a biological female. Defendant further claimed he was intoxicated, had brain damage, and acted in accordance with a Hispanic code of conduct that required him to protect females in his family. Protect them from what, Isaac? Happiness? As a side note, the older news stories sometimes had absolutely no tact in dealing with horrific things that happened to real people. In some of the most revolting reporting I've seen from the last 50 years, the Victor Valley Daily Press and staff writer Elizabeth Chambers chose to refer to John's life as, quote, bizarre, and to make cheeky comments and marginalize his death because Chambers couldn't comprehend someone born as a woman wanting to live as a man and grow a beard. While Deputy D.A. Gary Roth stood on the right side of decency, defense attorneys contended that John Stouffer's biological sex should be a pivotal part of the trial, and that the horror Gutierrez experienced somehow justified shooting a person who was defenseless in their own shower. John was only 25 years old at the time of his death, but he lived his life with a grace and authenticity that Isaac Gutierrez could never hope to reach. Isaac Gutierrez died in prison in December 2008 at the age of 64, which is 39 years more than John Stouffer got to enjoy. A scholarship fund was set up as the Stouffer Memorial Scholarship Fund for students at the Victor Valley College where he attended school. My second case today is from two years earlier and also in California. Franklin Gale Hitchens was an Ohio veteran from World War II who had lost his first wife, who died in 1944. Eventually, 
Frank found his way to San Joaquin County, California, where he found love again. He married his second wife, Catherine, in 1946, and they raised five children, Dennis, Doreen, Gail, Karen, and Carol Sue. Doreen Ray Hitchens was born November 29, 1952. She was kind and sweet, loving, and she was working as a physical therapist because she wanted to help people. But she really wanted to have kids and raise a family. In 1975, cheerful and generous Doreen met a man named William Michael Dennis, who went by Michael, and they quickly got romantically involved. Michael had a good job as a technician for Lockheed, so they were stable financially and ready to take the next steps. He had some hearing loss and a slight speech impediment, which had made him somewhat awkward with women, so for him to meet Doreen and have her want to be with him made a huge positive impact on his life. They became serious, they got married, living in San Jose, and fell into the daily routine of young married people. So on April 17, 1976, Doreen was thrilled to give birth to their little boy, Paul. Paul was a sweet baby. He was happy, loving, pleasant little guy, and Michael was absolutely enamored with the little boy. But despite the new baby, Doreen and Michael's marriage was falling apart, and they divorced in 1977. In 1978, Doreen was driving along and her car had broken down on the side of the highway. A man by the name of Charles Ebert stopped to help her. They hit it off quickly, and the next year, Doreen married Charles Ebert. Then in November 1979, Doreen had a daughter with Charles, and they named the little girl Deanna. Charles was a great father and stepfather, and little Paul and Charles loved each other beyond measure. Paul was just the sweetest little guy, happy and outgoing and was known by all how much he loved his baby sister, Deanna. Michael Dennis was able to take Paul for visitation, which he loved, and he always took as many opportunities as he could to spend time with his son. Overall, Doreen and Michael were able to maintain a peaceful coexistence until 1980. One day, when Paul was not quite four, his father Michael had just returned him to the Eberts following a regular visitation. Doreen was attending to Deanna the baby and watching Paul through the kitchen window while he played nearby in the back garden, but outside of the six-foot-high fence that surrounded the family's in-ground swimming pool. She didn't think he could get through the fence, so it didn't seem to be dangerous. Doreen turned away just for a moment, and when she turned back, she didn't see the little boy anywhere. She raced outside, calling his name, hoping that he was playing behind something. She desperately raced around trying to find him, and when she thought to check in the pool... She found him in the deep end. The frantic mother managed to get her son out of the pool, and Paul was taken to the hospital. He was placed on a respirator, and he was kept on life support for a week, after which it was turned off as there was no hope that he would recover. After the removal of life support, Paul's heart kept beating for three more days, but in the end his little body couldn't heal from the oxygen deprivation of his drowning, and he died. The whole family was in devastated shock. Paul had been such a light in all of their lives, and Doreen, Deanna, and Charles clung together to get through the loss. But Michael Dennis suffered tremendously in the struggle to come to terms with what had happened to Paul. His heart was broken. That little son had been the center of his world, and now he would never see him again. The crushing grief he experienced and continued to experience made his life unbearable. Because Doreen had had custody of Paul, and Paul had died while in her care, 
Michael blamed Doreen for the death of their son. He sued Doreen and Charles for wrongful death in Paul's drowning. But in 1982, a jury returned their verdict in favor of the Eberts. For years, there was no contact at all between the Eberts and Michael, except for one time that Charles saw Michael at a shopping center. In 1983, Doreen and Charles had their second child together, another boy named Jonathan. But at less than a year old, little Jonathan died, and this family tragedy was understandably devastating after losing Paul only a few years earlier. So they were thrilled again to become pregnant not too long thereafter, and were anxiously counting down the weeks to the birth of their son, who was due in November of 1984. On Halloween night, 1984, Charles and Doreen took Deanna trick-or-treating, and when they got home, they decided to watch a movie on TV until the trick-or-treating was over. Ever so often, someone would knock, and Doreen would get up and hand out candy. Charles decided he needed to make a quick run to the store, and he would be back shortly. Doreen and Deanna were at home when there was a very strong and harsh knock at the front door. Doreen went to the door expecting trick-or-treaters. An adult or older teen was standing on the porch, wearing a mask and carrying a bag. Four-year-old Deanna was nearby in the living room. As soon as Doreen opened the door, little Deanna heard her mother say, Get out of my house! And then she heard a man's voice say, I'm going to kill you. Doreen immediately shouted to Deanna to hide, so Deanna ran and hid behind the couch. The man in the mask, carrying a machete, attacked Doreen in the doorway and then entered the home, looking for Deanna, who stayed hidden as her mom had told her to do. Even though he couldn't find her, the attacker shouted at Deanna, only four years old, that if she said anything to anyone, he was going to come back and kill her. The man was only at the house for about one minute. The next paragraph I'm going to read to you is both graphic and horrible. And just remember, this was an horrific attack on a woman who was eight months pregnant. So if that's too much for you, please skip ahead about a minute. Doreen had been stabbed and slashed in the arm, the neck, and her abdomen. The police described the treatment of her pregnant belly as being flayed open like a gutted deer. Her baby boy, by now a viable fetus and due in less than four weeks, was clearly the real target. He had attacked Doreen's belly with such viciousness that the baby that Charles and Doreen had named Dennis Charles Ebert was unthinkably hacked apart with the machete. His tiny dismembered limbs were obscenely left lying where they had fallen in different places on the living room floor. The majority of his remains had fallen under a chair that was holding a jack-o'-lantern. There was nearly an inch of blood pooled on the floor, and blood was spattered on all adjacent walls and the ceiling, illustrating the frenzy of the attack. A trail of blood was found that led from the house to the sidewalk. I found one source that said the blood stopped at the street, that he had driven to the house, and that blood was found inside of his car. Another source said that the blood trail led to a freeway crossover sidewalk. The neighborhood on the other side of the crossover was where Michael Dennis lived. It was a six-minute walk from his house to theirs. Regardless, there was a blood trail indicating a large amount of blood, and he did live very nearby the family. When Charles returned home from the store, he first noticed the unlocked front door, which was not normal. He entered carefully, where he found Doreen. 
He couldn't believe what he was seeing, and having had a few drinks that night, was slightly intoxicated. The first thought he had was that Doreen must have miscarried, as they had experienced miscarriages in the preceding several years. But once he saw her injuries, that obviously wasn't what had taken place. Charles was frantic and horrified, and he struggled to get through to 911, so he instead called the fire department and a neighbor for help. He looked for his little daughter, and after he found her safe, told Deanna to go straight to the neighbor's house. By the time the fire department and shortly thereafter the police arrived, he had somehow managed to get covered in blood. He was having a complete breakdown because he couldn't process what had happened and what he had seen. Who could even imagine walking into this on what was supposed to be a fun night of trick-or-treating and playfulness to find such an unthinkable scene of inhumanity and gore? No one should ever witness such a scene, but Charles did, and, inconceivably, little four-year-old Deanna did too. Despite her terrible injuries, Doreen was clinging to life when the ambulance arrived at the house. They placed her on a stretcher and headed for the hospital, but Doreen died in transit. She was 31. She had died from multiple chopping wounds, which had led to exsanguination, or the severe loss or draining of blood. Charles had been sent outside so the paramedics could do their jobs, and he was inconsolable. He kept pacing back and forth, stomping, talking loudly to the police officers. He seemed not to have any control over himself. At first, Charles was looked at as a suspect and was held for questioning. But soon the neighbors suggested another possible suspect. They told the police about the drowning of little Paul in 1980 and the vitriol that had existed between Michael Dennis and the Eberts, but especially Michael's hatred and blame towards Doreen. Ultimately, the police went to find Michael Dennis, and when they searched his home, blood was found there as well as a serious cut on his hand. He first denied having anything to do with Doreen's murder, but was arrested after the release of Charles. While in jail, inmates at the Santa Clara County Jail put on a mock trial and declared Michael Dennis guilty. As punishment, they poured bleach on him in the shower. It took four years for the trial to begin, and over that time, Michael Dennis was interviewed by about a dozen psychologists who came to different but similar conclusions. That Michael tended to bottle up his emotions until they exploded out of him, that he had developed paranoid tendencies, and that he honestly believed that Paul's death had not been an accident. Michael believed that Doreen had murdered Paul because she was jealous about how close Michael was with his son. Michael had also developed many recurring fantasies about killing Doreen and Charles, in particular kidnapping and drowning them so that they would know what Paul had experienced. Michael Dennis had also recently been demoted at work, so his finances were suffering because of that, and he had also just broken up with his girlfriend. Michael had the idea that Doreen and Charles were laughing at him as they started their new family and had more children while he had lost his only child and didn't have any prospects for another family. When the trial began, he admitted he had killed Doreen, but that he hadn't planned to. He also claimed he didn't know she was eight months pregnant, and that he never did anything to the baby after he was expelled from her body through the horrible wounds he had sliced with the machete. The jury deliberated for four days and found Michael Dennis guilty of first-degree murder of Doreen, and second-degree murder of the baby because he could have lived outside of the womb. Michael Dennis was sentenced to death for the crimes. 
Ten years later, the California Supreme Court upheld the death sentence in a unanimous decision. In June 2023, under Governor Gavin Newsom, capital punishment sentences were placed under an official moratorium and are not allowed to be carried out. He is currently 73 years old and still incarcerated in the California Medical Facility, which is a medium security medical facility for the treatment of male inmates. Charles sued for false arrest a year after the murder. Charles withdrew from all of his friends and family after Doreen's murder. He was in such a state of grief that Deanna found herself being bounced around to other family members because Charles didn't feel strong enough or able to take care of both him and Deanna. But eventually, his family started practicing tough love and told him he needed to be spending time with his daughter because she needed him and he needed her. Charles was suffering so deeply and was so unable to cope that he started drinking heavily. He would binge drink to escape the reality of his loss. For about a year, Deanna was placed into a foster home to give Charles some amount of time to start to process the death of his wife and son. But eventually he found himself again, and he reunited and became closer than ever with Deanna. Doreen had wanted nothing more than to love and to be loved and to have and raise her own family. But things had been set in motion beyond her control that led to an enormous amount of loss for her and for her family. She had lost Paul in 1980 at the age of three, her son Jonathan when he was less than a year old, another loss that was a miscarriage, and then her third son was murdered in her womb before birth. Her only living child was Deanna. Deanna never got to grow up to be with her mother, but she knows that she was loved. She also knows in her heart that her father needed to be given permission by his own spiritual ethos to move on and to experience living again after the loss of his wife. But knowing her mother and father loved her didn't prevent Deanna from suffering. For many years, Deanna felt separate, boxed, unable to connect with people on some level. She had blocked out most of the tragic memories, and when she started to regain them, she struggled and acted out. But when her therapist told her she had to talk about it, to wear down the sharp edges of the pain, she took that to heart. She realized her mom would want her daughter to heal, and her mom would want her to do whatever she had to do in order to be okay. I started researching this case a couple of weeks ago, and just this past week, Oxygen released a new episode of Homicide for the Holidays, which you can watch on Oxygen or Peacock, and it covers this case. And so if you want to watch that, you can find it on Oxygen. I cannot watch it because I don't have Oxygen or Peacock. But if you see it, let me know what you think of it. These two stories were terrible cases that both happened in California, both happened in the 1980s. They were very different from one another, but they're both really tragic and horrifying cases. John Stouffer deserved better. He did not deserve to die. He had every right to live his life however he chose, and he had found someone who loved him for exactly who he was, and it's tragic that that was stolen from him and that he was stolen from Rosa. And then what happened to Doreen is so brutally obscene. There's just no description of what happened to her and to the baby that doesn't just outrage and infuriate. I understand that Michael Dennis was in terrible pain. I understand that he was so grief-stricken and unable to cope with the loss of his son that he more or less just lost his mind. 
He fantasized for years about killing Doreen, but I, I don't believe for one second that he didn't see that she was eight months pregnant when he came to that door. I think he knew she was pregnant. I think he came there because she was pregnant, and he resented the fact that she had been able to move on and make a new family, as if he believed that she wasn't grieving Paul. Of course she was still grieving Paul. But that doesn't mean that her world stopped. She had to deal with that and keep going forward. And Michael Dennis chose not to deal with it. He could have gotten help. He could have gone to talk to someone. He could have had therapy. He probably should have been on some sort of medication. But Doreen's death was not necessary. It shouldn't have happened. And that baby should be 39 years old now. So please let me know what you think of these two cases. They were terrible, and it was hard to tell these stories. But like all of the cases that I cover, I felt these people needed to be remembered. And that is going to do it for the end of episode 81 at True Crime B&B. Thank you for being here today. If you could go give me a like and maybe a five-star rating and a review somewhere, I would be very grateful. In the meantime, I will be back in two weeks with another guest hostess, and I'm looking forward to that. So hopefully you will be back with me in two weeks, and I thank you very much for being here. Talk to you later. Bye, all. We're married in the 19 late, and we're married in the night, in the late, what the, why can't I say this? John was released from, nope. Carrying a machete. Fucking stop. Undergun. Under. Undergone. This sucks. I'm going to start this completely over. This sucks. Michael. What is wrong with me today?